Yeah, it is a joy to be here at New City. It is a joy to come uh, on weekends and weeks to come and teach at Indianapolis Theological Seminary. And it's a joy when I come to places like this where there's a basketball court. I'm sure there are games that take place here because uh, it's a picture of my life. Growing up, basketball was certainly an idol for me, uh, and when God moved in, basketball moved out. Uh, so it's certainly a joy to, to watch and occasionally to shoot. My kids are now running circles around me, so maybe that's another part of it. Uh, but it is a joy to be here to open God's Word with you and to see the resurrection hope, the resurrection life that we find because of the finished work of Christ. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to John chapter 19. We're going to be looking at six snapshots from the cross of Christ. Any one of these we could dig deeper on, but we're going to look at them together to see this glorious finished work uh, that Christ proclaims from the cross. And uh, at our church, we stand when we read scripture before the sermon. So I invite you to stand for the hearing of God's word if you're able to do so. And we're going to begin in John 19, verse 16, uh, at the end of that, and we'll read on down to verse 37. This is the word of the Lord. So they took Jesus... And he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also spoke an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe." For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Father, we thank you for this word, this spirit-inspired text. We thank you that the word is not a dead word, but it is a living word and has the power to give life. And so we pray that as we hear these words from Christ and words of Christ today, that you would give us life. Father, for those who may not know you coming into this room today, that you might impart to them life, that they would be born again. And Father, we pray for those who have new life in the Spirit that they would be strengthened by the grace that comes from your Word. Father, we confess that we do not live on bread alone, but we live upon every word that proceeds from the Lord, and this is your Word. So Father, I pray that you would help me to preach your Word in truth today. We confess that your Word is truth, and we pray now that you would sanctify us by the Word of truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Incomplete, undone, unfinished, truncated, deficient, partial, insufficient. Take your pick. These are not the words that you want pinned on your chest, written over your head, or stamped on your work. And yet, how often in life do we find partially completed or unfinished projects? Diet plans to travel plans, from growing a family to building a company, from courses of study to military campaigns to everything else in between, unfinished labor surrounds us, afflicts us, and tempts us to despair. How many are the books that you have started, the projects that you have attempted, the children that you have raised, the careers that you have built, which did not end the way that you intended? Wisdom, Moses says in Psalm 90, comes from learning how to number our days. And when we number our days aright, we quickly discover that anything that we finish is a gift of mercy. And the greatest gift of mercy is not the work that we have begun, continued, and finished. The greatest gift of mercy and the greatest work that has ever been completed is the work of Christ, which he completed on the cross. When he breathed his last and declared, it is finished. This is the work above all works and the only true job where it could be said, well done. For those who know the Bible, this single final word of Christ is the capstone of the gospel. It is the cornerstone of our salvation. And as you have been studying in the Old Testament As you are about to see in John, everything else in Scripture is leading to this last and final word of Christ. To tell us die, it is finished. We might ask the question, what exactly did Jesus finish? In some ways, this is the million-dollar question. And ironically, as important as this question is, there's often confusion about what Christ did on the cross. Yesterday and the day before teaching ITS, this is what we consider the cross of Christ and all that it means and all that it doesn't mean as it has been mistaught in so many places in our world today. Some have said that he has defeated the devil and the powers of evil on the cross. And of course, this is true. But if that is all that there is, then we are still left in our sins. We're still in need of forgiveness as we stand before a holy God. Not to mention the need that we have for an inner life change that comes from the Holy Spirit. Others have argued that Christ's death is a model of love and sacrifice and that on the cross we see a model of true humanity and by imitation of Christ's cross we are changed by the cross. And this too has truth in it. 
But if Christ's death did not accomplish something, if it was only a model to follow, then we have to ask the question, was it really necessary? Was it, was there some other way that this could have been done? And this gets to another way that people have looked at the cross. Some believe that God in his freedom could have brought salvation however he chose. That the cross is a way of salvation, but is it really necessary for our salvation? Couldn't God in his limitless power just say the word and grant salvation? Why do we need blood and judgment and wrath? The answer comes back that to deny the cross's necessity is to ignore God's holiness and man's sinfulness. Not to mention the fact that Scripture has said that the wages of sin is death and that there is a need for a substitute to die in our place. Moreover, such a view that the cross is not necessary misses all the ways that God has prepared for the cross in the Old Testament through priests and altars and sacrifices and substitutes. Indeed, when we press into the details of the Bible, we find that the message of the cross begins in the beginning and continues all the way to the end. And in God's wise planning, there exists in Scripture a storyline of salvation by substitution, propitiation and atoning sacrifice for sin by the Lord's provision, justification by the judge being judged for our judgment. This story is carried along by rams who are caught in thickets and priests sacrificing countless lambs and servant songs promising salvation. And through all of these portraits of salvation, when Jesus cries out, it is finished, he's not just saying that his earthly work has come to an end. He is saying that all that God has planned and promised and prophesied has come to its full completion. This is the foundation of the good news of the gospel. That what God said that he would do, improbable as it was, he has done. And standing at the center of these promises is the unfathomable reality that God sent his son to die on a Roman cross in our place. So that whoever believes upon him for the forgiveness of sins will not be condemned when they stand before God, but will have everlasting life. This is the heart of the message of the Bible. Today, we will focus on one passage that aims to bring so many of these themes together. Indeed, standing one week removed from Easter, it is good for us to proclaim again, He is risen. He is risen indeed. That truth is not just good for Easter Sunday. It is good for every day of the year. He is risen, He is reigning, and He is ruling. And with that glorious news on our minds, we should consider what it means that the risen Christ, when he hung on the cross, declared, it is finished. Moreover, we should consider the whole context of that important word in John 19 and the many ways that John the Apostle connects the cross of Christ to the rest of the Bible. For not only does John report the events of Christ's death, but he also explains how they fulfill Scripture. And so, by listening carefully to John, we'll understand more completely what the Bible says about Christ and his cross. And at the same time, by looking at the finished work of Christ, we will find rest for our souls. And so with that in mind, let's dive into John's gospel. In the beginning here, John 19, verse 16. Verses 16 through 37, we find six sections to consider, or what we might call six snapshots of the cross. 
And in each, we learn how the promises of God are fulfilled in the cross of Christ. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you not to get bogged down into all of the details. They are many, but to marvel at how they all come together, these multiple streams from the Old Testament, to converge upon one glorious waterfall of grace that comes from the cross. And in that waterfall of grace, you can see how the cross provides salvation, identifies the true king, provides a perfect priest, creates a new and lasting family, completes the word of God, and supplies the perfect sacrifice, Passover lamb who dies in our place for our sins. So those are the six snapshots that we will be looking at today. And we begin by looking at the place where Jesus was crucified. This is the first snapshot. God's provision in the place where Jesus was crucified. John 19, verses 16 through 18, we find these words. So he, Pilate, delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they, the soldiers, took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. There are a number of things that we could highlight from these verses, but the one thing that repeats is an emphasis on the place, the location where Jesus is crucified. Notice Pilate gives the instructions and the soldiers take Jesus outside of the city. He has to bear his own cross as the soldiers lead him to a place that is called the place of the skull or Golgotha or Calvary. Verse 20, the place is mentioned also, and in verse 41, John uses the word place a third time. So three times, John is pointing to the place where Jesus died, and in verse 18, he even adds there, another place marker, to the very spot that Jesus hung in between two criminals. So apparently, John wants us to know where Jesus was crucified, but why? In answering that question, we might be tempted to spend all of our time trying to figure out where the cross stood today, where the garden tomb was, and where they matched Jerusalem in our day. There's value in these historical facts, but that value will not help us to understand John. John is not writing for 21st century Jerusalem tourists. He is writing so that we would know something of the significance of Christ's cross. And so he writes from the light of the Old Testament. And with that light of the Old Testament, we can say two things about the place of Christ's cross. First, Jesus is crucified outside the city, which captures the way that Jesus died as a sin offering. In Leviticus 4, the sin offering was taken outside the camp to be burned. And just the same, the book of Hebrews makes the theological point that you have to go outside of the camp to come to Christ. Jesus' place outside of the camp makes him a greater sin offering. That's the first thing to see. Jesus' death outside the city reinforces the fact that he is a sacrificial lamb. And that's the second thing is that Jesus is the sacrifice provided by God himself. Incredibly, Jerusalem is the place where God built the temple. First Chronicles chapter 3, it says that this temple was built on Mount Moriah. And what is special about Mount Moriah? Well, if you go back and read Genesis 22, it says that this is the hill where God will provide. On the hill of the Lord, it will be provided. And what is it that will be provided? 
you remember, there was the ram caught in a thicket, the sacrificial lamb that will atone for sins. In Abraham's day, God provided a ram as a guilt offering to substitute for Isaac. And we know that it is a guilt offering because when you go to Leviticus, it was the ram that was to be used for the firstborn in substitution. In the days of Christ, the Lord has now provided a greater guilt offering for the sins of his beloved children. So place matters. And knowing the hill city of Jerusalem is the place where God provided Abraham's sacrifice, and knowing that God intentionally built the temple of the place of Mount Moriah, and knowing that Jesus' death on the cross was intended to fill all the types and shadows of the sacrifices offered in that temple, we begin to get a picture of how God's history with Israel was moving towards the cross. So that's the first snapshot, that the hill of the Lord is where God made a provision for our pardon. The second snapshot looks to the sign that hung above Jesus' head, declaring him to be king. In particular, John focuses on what is written. Listen to verses 19 through 22 and keep an ear out for every mention of the word write or wrote or written. Verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, literally, it was written, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. In these four verses, the word grapho, I write, is used six times. And the whole time, what Pilate wrote above Jesus' head is at issue. He wrote it in three different languages, so to make clear for all those walking by that they would be able to understand. Jesus of Nazareth, crucified as a criminal, this is the one who is king of the Jews. Now this caused quite a stir among the Jewish leaders. And it might be worth noting that when John speaks of the Jews here, he is not speaking of Jewish people in general, but the rich and powerful rulers who are there in Jerusalem. And so these rich and powerful men of Judea were fighting against Pilate's declaration that Jesus is king. Yet, Using what Pilate said, John affirms the true identity of King Jesus. Jesus didn't merely claim to be king. He was and he is king. He always will be king. And specifically, he was king of the Jews, which means that he was king over all the nations as well. I know next week you'll be in 2 Samuel 7, and there you will see the promise that God gave to David that one of his sons would sit on an eternal throne, that this is the king of all the earth. And now, in Pilate's inscription, he has become a prophet who wrote better than he knew. Pilate didn't believe in Jesus, but under God's sovereign hands, this self-protecting king identifies that Jesus is the true king, the king of the Jews, who will rule over all other kings. Incredibly, when he defended what he wrote, his words even echo the words of Yahweh. Yahweh said to Moses in Exodus 3, I am what I am. 
And now Pilate now says, what I have written, I have written. So who is Jesus? He is the king of the Jews. He is the king over all the nations. He is the king of the universe, and he is the king of glory. And on the cross, this king took the role of a servant to show what kind of king he was and to die for the sins of his kingdom people. And though the world looked at Jesus beaten and broken and bloody body and thought, what kind of king is this? John, using the words of Pilate, says that this is the true king whose greatness is seen not in just his ruling over everyone, but in his sacrifice for his people and their sins. In other words, Jesus is a priestly kind of king, which is actually the third snapshot that we find in verses 23 and 24. In these two verses, we move from the sign above Jesus' head to the soldiers below Jesus' feet. And here's what we find. Verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so the soldiers did these things. In these verses, John gives the first of four references to Old Testament Scripture in these verses in John 19. And John says that the soldiers divided Jesus' garments and that this fulfilled the words of Psalm 22, verse 18, which John quotes here. As with all New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, it is not just the verse that matters, but the original context where that verse is found. You may know what is in Psalm 22 and how it begins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes those words as well when he is on the cross as he experiences all of the agonies of Psalm 22. Through David's suffering and his psalm writing, the Holy Spirit inspired these words to give meaning to Christ's cross. In fact, we cannot understand the full experience of Christ's cross without David's prophetic witness. Still, there's something else that we should note in the soldiers dividing Jesus' clothing. And it has to do with the seamless garment that Jesus wore. This was his tunic. This was his undergarments, the garments that would be closest to his skin. The fact that soldiers gambled for Jesus' tunic indicates that the king of glory was stripped naked on the cross, bearing the shame that we deserve. But the fact that John stresses the seamless nature of the tunic is significant, if not a little strange. Remember, John's gospel doesn't struggle with commercial advertising the way that we do. If you're watching a documentary on the History Channel about Jesus... You need to know that half the things that are said there are probably not true to the Bible. But also, you may find that in between the different sections of the channel, different documentary that is there, there may be a commercial break that has a myriad of commercials, and some of them may be for underwear. I'm sure that you've seen too many Hanes or Fruit of the Loom commercials in your lifetime. And the scattered nature of our TV programming doesn't have a way of jolting it. That's just the way that it is in our postmodern world. We learn something important and real, and then we get commercials right along the way. 
And so maybe it's not jolting to us when we come and read John 19 that he takes time to focus on the embroidery of Jesus' undergarments. The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. How strange that John takes the time to give us this detail. Again, if you were to hear someone in the hallway talking afterwards about the size and shape of their undergarments, I think there might be a conversation with your pastor along the way. What's going on here? Again, Scripture answers Scripture, and no detail of Scripture is unimportant. And the description of the seamless unity of Christ's tunic recalls the fact that Scripture does talk about holy undergarments, H-O-L-Y. Leviticus 21.10, we find these words about high priests and their clothing. It says, the priest who is chief among his brothers, that's the high priest, on whose head the anointing oil is poured and who has been consecrated to wear the garments shall let the hair of his head hang loose, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. So, why are Jesus' clothes not torn? Well, John says it's to fulfill Scripture. And the scripture that he cites is Psalm 22. But in narrating the event of the soldiers gambling for his tunic, there is a strong connection to the fact that Jesus is the priest and the true priest and the real and lasting priest. How do we know? Well, because when his clothes were given into the hands of beasts, that's how Psalm 22 describes his captors, these beasts remarkably did not tear his clothes indicating that his true identity is the true high priest. Now consider the contrast. In Matthew 26 and in Mark 14, we do find that the high priest of Jesus' day, the Levitical priest, does tear his clothes. And so for those who have ears to hear, the Gospels are indicating that the priesthood of Levi, the Aaronic priest, their priesthood is being torn apart and a new priesthood is coming. And the chief priest of that priesthood, his name is Jesus. And so on the, the cross, in the final sacrifice, we see the priest's final offering for sin. And we'll come back in a moment to the sacrifice. But it's worth our time to make a contemporary application. If it feels as though those who are over you, those who are in power around you, are gambling with your life and your livelihood, take heart. You have a sympathetic high priest who understands. Jesus on the cross was stripped bare. He watched as his only earthly possessions, his clothing, was torn from his body and gambled over. To him, you can bring your fears and your pain, and your burdens. For he knows how to comfort you. Even if he doesn't take away the threat or restore your lot, you can know that your great high priest is even now living to intercede for you by name, personally interceding for your needs. And nothing that you face can separate you from his love or his life. And the proof of this inseparable bond with Jesus is seen in what happens next on the cross. Namely, the fourth snapshot, that Jesus creates a new family. The cross creates a new spiritual family. Verses 25 through 27, we hear Jesus speak from the cross to his family. 
But rather than just giving comfort to his earthly kin, Jesus, by the Spirit, is going to unite Mary, his mother, to John, his beloved disciple, in this symbol of a new family that is going to be defined by the Spirit he's going to give later and by the relationship that they now have. Listen to how it says it. John 19, verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, if we had more time, we could explore who these family members are. But what is most important for us to see is the way that Jesus forms a new spiritual family between Mary and John. In fact, even the announcement that was heard earlier about care for members of your family, that's what the church is. It is the family of God centered on the gospel, united together by the Holy Spirit. And that family is created by the death and resurrection of Christ. And so on the cross, Jesus' pronouncement foreshadows this coming reality of this family of faith that is united in Christ in his death and resurrection. Today, the church is unified by the blood of Christ and the communion of his Holy Spirit. And as a church family, you're not upheld by what you look like nor by what you like. You are upheld by the one who died in your place for your sins, making you one in him together by his spirit. By his death and by dying with him and rising with him, you lose your earthly identification first so that you gain a new and eternal identification that is found in Christ. In other words, where you are from, what you like, how you much you have, how much you know, all of these are nothing compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ and being known by Christ as the people of Christ. That's what Jesus is saying in these statements about Mary and John. And they teach us that the death of Christ created a new spiritual family in Christ. Indeed, Christ's death was not the end, but the beginning of something entirely new. And still, for the new thing that has come to life by Christ's death, we have to see how Christ's work on the cross finished all that God intended. Which brings us to the final word from the cross, which is the fifth snapshot. God's final word. In verses 28 through 30, we come to Jesus' final words. And here, we don't just have one final word, one finished word. We have three. Listen to how it reads in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill, and the word here is literally finished or complete. It's the same word as finished earlier and in verse 30. To fulfill, to finish scripture, he says, I thirst. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Here Jesus declares that it is finished in verse 30. And the word finished is used twice in verse 28. And in verse 28, John says that Jesus knew that all had come to its end, to its completion. Which is to say 
that with the knowledge that his thirst was fulfilling scripture, he speaks this minute detail, I thirst so that it will fulfill even that verse in Psalm 69, verse 21, that all of us probably would have missed unless Jesus spoke it. But knowing that that too needed to be said to fulfill and to finish all of Scripture, he speaks, I thirst. Truly, Jesus not only knew all that he had to do to finish his course, he even knew the most small detail when it was completed. Which tells us that there is nothing left to chance in our salvation. He can say it is finished because he has taken care of it all. And the security of our salvation there even goes further because John doesn't just say, again, that he fulfilled Scripture, but that he has completed Scripture. He has finished Scripture. This is the word teleao, the word for to telestai, it is finished. That's what he says, that Scripture is completed. Indeed, on the cross, Jesus not only finished his work of God's provision and God's kingdom and God's priesthood, but he has finished his work as the word made flesh. Jesus is the full and final word of God. And because of that, we do not need another revelation. We do not need another sign. We do not need another prophecy or another word that comes to us from God. He has given to us all that we need for life and godliness in the word that comes down from the cross. Now, that doesn't invalidate the apostles' teaching. That doesn't invalidate the rest of the New Testament. It actually supports them. Because only the apostles were promised the Spirit to speak the words explaining Christ's cross. And only those like John and Peter and Paul who saw the risen Christ could speak with apostolic authority. But importantly, this authority was granted to the apostles by the one who finished the work of God and who completed the Word of God. Now and forever, the Scriptures all point to the cross and the final revelation of God therein. And not surprisingly, what comes next then in the sixth snapshot are two passages of Scripture that explain how Jesus' dead body proves that he is the true and final sacrifice. Beginning in verse 31, John starts to explain what happened to Jesus' body after he died. And not surprisingly, everything that happened to Jesus' body goes according to plan. And not just Pilate's plan or the soldier's plan, but God's plan. And that plan centered on Christ being the final sacrifice, the true Passover lamb and the fountain of living water that would cleanse us from all our sin. Listen to how John puts it in verses 31 to verse 37. He says, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken, and again another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So as Jesus' body hung lifeless on the cross, 
we see that God was orchestrating all of these final events to glorify the Son and to prove who He is. And John reports that the soldiers did not break any of the bones in the legs of Jesus, both proving that Jesus was truly dead and that Jesus was the true Passover lamb. And this is why it says in verse 36, not one of his bones will be broken because in the Passover, the lambs could not have any of their bones broken. And so it is with Jesus that he is the true and greater lamb. The Lamb of God who came into the world to die so that our sins could be forgiven. And similarly, after the soldiers speared Jesus in the side, causing water and blood to flow, John makes the connection with Zechariah 12, verse 10, which says more fully, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. In other words, the Spirit of God will cause the men and women in that city to have power to be able to repent and to return towards the Lord. It says, So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and will weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This passage explains that the meaning of the blood and the water flowing from Jesus' side is symbolic of the cleansing flow for our sins more than it is some sort of medical pronouncement. Indeed, you can find today many medical reports of why it was blood and water that came from the side of Jesus. But John didn't have a subscription to the Journal of American Medical Association. He had something better. He had the Old Testament. And with a deep knowledge of the Old Testament, including Zechariah 12, John is telling us that Christ's death will forgive sins, purify hearts, and create new life. And that that new life comes from Christ and empowers sinners like us to be able to repent and believe. Friends, such is the way of life that comes to the death of Christ. And today, as we gather on the Lord's Day, remembering the resurrection of Christ, we do so because of his finished work on the cross. And wonderfully, his message to us, it is finished, is not a word that gives us an example to follow or a victory to chase or a job to do. No, the cross does not give us a technique for attaining spiritual life or earthly success. Rather, long before we get to doing anything at all and following Jesus, the cross of Christ calls us to stop doing things and to stop building our lives on our fallible works, and it calls us to rest in the finished work of Christ. The cross is a message of completion and satisfaction and salvation. And for those who turn from their sinful lusts and their failing works to Christ and his cross, God gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. For all who are needy and poor and without hope, the cross provides salvation. For those who are willing to stop ruling others and trying to control the world around them, the cross gives you a true and loving king. For those who need their sins forgiven, the cross is the altar of the perfect priest. For those who are estranged from others, the cross offers you a new and lasting family. For those who need to hear a word from God, the cross signs off on all the promises that God has made. Yes and amen in Jesus Christ.
and for those who stand unclean and condemned. The cross supplies the perfect sacrifice, the Passover lamb whose blood was applied so that when you hide behind the blood, you can be forgiven and receive life in Christ. Remarkably, the cross is the full and finished work of Christ. And for all who are willing to leave behind their dead works, you will find life eternal at the cross. It is finished. You don't have to add anything else. Come and rest and trust and believe on Christ and find his life today and forever. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word, the word that is the word of Christ. Father, we pray that today that you would send forth your spirit to seal these words to us, to our hearts. Father, if there again is anyone here today who is not, has not been made alive by the word of Christ, we pray that you would give them life, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would make them live. And Father, for those who have found life in Christ, who are weary and heavy laden, for those who are lamenting and broken and hurting and sorrowful, Lord, would you comfort them with your word? Father, would all of us continue to lift our eyes to Christ and to see the finished work that is there and to know that Christ now reigns on high, even now, living to intercede for us. And may our hope be singularly in him. Father, we thank you for the word. It is finished. We pray that you give us grace to trust in that truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.